We are looking uh, this winter quarter at this question of the order of Christian salvation, or, or how theologians have put it as the ordo salutis. Uh, and we're going each week through a particular uh, aspect of that order. In other words, there is a, there's a pattern that the Bible has established by which it takes someone who is lost and turns them into a Christian. And the more that you examine that pattern I'm submitting to you, uh, the more encouragement that you get from it. Because you begin to realize that God kind of had this thing worked out a long time ago. And as a matter of fact, this morning we find out it's as long as it possibly can be. And so as we begin to sort of turn the gym, these are the ones that we're going through. Uh, we, we began for two weeks when we, after we introduced the idea of an order of salvation with this idea of union with Christ. We spent two weeks on that because it's just so vital, this idea that there is all of the rest that comes in our conceiving and executing of salvation is considered because of this great intimate connection between God and his people uh, in Christ, this, this, this communion and union with Christ. Well, today, we're going to highlight this uh, second aspect, and that is that we'll find that, that this idea of our being connected to Christ, being deeply and powerfully united to him, was thought about in God's mind even before there was time. This is not something that was sort of a last-ditch uh, effort <laughs> that God made to sort of throw out the idea of salvation. Uh, this had been planned by him for a long time. And so in introducing this, I want to remind you of a scene that came from a movie uh, uh, called The Dead Poet Society. Uh, Robin Williams, of course, one of his more famous roles of being a school teacher uh, in English literature. At one point during the movie depicted by this scene, he invites the entire class to come up and view the classroom uh, while standing on top of a desk. You remember this scene? And the reason why he does is because he says you really can't truly uh, respect or, 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 or enjoy a piece of literature until you take a new perspective on it, until you change the scenery a little bit, until you look at it from, from as high up as you can possibly get. Well, there's a sense in which the study that we're going to do this morning uh, is really about as high as you can get. And it sort of begins this, uh, with this idea, this question of asking yourself, why are you a Christian? Have you ever thought to wonder, why is it that I presume upon myself to call myself a Christian? Someone could look and say, well, because uh, I had faith. I'm a Christian because I believed. There was this time in which this information was presented to me, and I believe, that's why I'm a Christian. But someone could ask, well, why did you believe? Why did you have faith? And someone could say, well, because I, I saw my sin. I understood the, 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 the message that was preached. But then let's say that person just really presses in on you and says, yeah, but why did you see your sin? And why did you understand the message when so many other people did not? You might say, well, I was more open to the message. I, I was more willing to answer to it. And on and on you could go. The point is this. When you get down to the question and you come down to it, the real reason that you came to Christ, if the question's posed in that particular way, is because I'm better. I did something right. Somewhere along the way, in the midst of all of the messes of my life, I did this one thing correctly. Well, the problem with that is... <laughs> It goes against almost everything the Bible says about what our salvation is made out of. 
And even if we say, well, you know what, this was a 50-50 proposition. You know, God came hit half the way, and I sort of made up the other half the way. Even if you say, well, it was 75-25. <laughs> uh, God did 75. Maybe God did 99% of your salvation. But even if you were left with just that 1%, in the end, your salvation depends on you. And it's because you were better. But Christians who have studied the Bible for years have said that just doesn't feel right. <laughs> when I look at the facts and I see what the Bible says, both explicitly and implicitly, I find that my salvation is not resting upon, is not due to, if you will, anything that I could commend in me. But it's actually resting on what God did and his initiative to take inside of me. Explicitly, you get passages very famous like Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul as he begins to lay out the beauty of this salvation, begins to say something to the effect of, in love, he predestined us. Predestined us for all of this great redemption that he describes, the adoption of sons, uh, the redemption of our bodies, you know, redemption by his blood. All these things began in the mind of God before we were ever born. We get places like Romans chapter 9 where Paul talks about this idea that, that uh, before Jacob and Esau were ever born, God placed his blessing upon Jacob and said the, younger is gonna, the older is actually going to serve the younger because of his, what had gone on in his mind. Oh, so they're explicit places. Romans chapter 8 would be another one. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified and sanctified. But there's also these places in the Bible where you find that it's implicitly spoken. In other words, this idea of God's sovereignty and people's salvation had so gripped the earliest writers that they began to sort of slide it into these little verses, almost implicit admissions. In John chapter 6, 44, John remembers Jesus talking about a sheep when he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, you get zero credit for actually feeling drawn to Jesus, which is very interesting. <laughs> Some of us had mixed motives for coming to church on, on New Year's Day. But the Bible says the reason why you're here this morning is because God drew you. God drew you, because no one does it unless God draws you. In Acts 16, we find out that there's a woman called Lydia who becomes a Christian. Very powerful businesswoman uh, was Lydia. And we find that she becomes a Christian when the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Why did she pay attention to what was said by Paul? Because the Lord had opened her heart. There was something prior to what she had said. Earlier on in Acts 13, we find that, that, that even as they're looking at the mass conversions of people that are coming into the kingdom, they, the way they phrase it is, and all who were appointed to eternal life, believed. Well, who did the appointing? It wasn't the apostles who did the appointing. It was the, the sovereign spirit of God who established all these. The point is simply this. The explicit and implicit teaching of the New Testament is that you can't make yourself a Christian. And this is truly distinctive, and y'all have heard me say stuff like this before. There really is no other world religion that works like this. If you want to be a Buddhist, here's a set of teachings to follow. If you want to be a Muslim, here's what you have to do to be one. If you want to be a Hindu, Hindu, here's the, here's the path. But in Christianity says, you want to be a Christian? 
You can't even be one until God opens your heart. It's completely distinct. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, I don't like that distinctive. We may not mention that to my lost friends, but that's hold on just for a minute. Because I realize that so oftentimes the, the, the Presbyterian, and we would use this phrase, Reformed tradition, the Reformed tradition is nothing more than the, the, the sort of Presbyterian Protestantism that came up out of the Reformation. Reformed theology came from the Reformation. That's where that word comes from. And that line of theology has always been very rich with the teachings of early Protestantism, especially around the teachings of Martin Luther and John Calvin and the rest of the uh, sort of uh, reformers who taught that the Bible says that our salvation is due simply to God's mind. And very oftentimes we get very defensive about it. I'm going to spend my whole lesson this morning being very defensive about it (laughs) to answer objections. But the reason I'm going to do it that way is because in the midst of it, if we could set aside our defensiveness for a moment, even the defensiveness that some of us have inside of our own belly being like, whoa, 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 this church is one of those churches that believes that? I, I came to the wrong place this morning. Before you do that, bear with me for a little bit so we can see some real sweetness. Remember, we're turning the gem. We're spinning the diamond of salvation. And I want to submit to you that there's some glory and some beauty even in this idea that God's absolute sovereign control over man's salvation uh, is a biblical fact. So election. So look, obviously we're going to go and deal with some objections, things that people sort of look and be like, I'm not sure I can deal with this. We'll try to answer them in ways that don't get too technical and too weird, okay? Um, So let's start with this one. Well, okay, Les, I thought that God had foreknowledge of us. In other words, there's that, we talked about Romans chapter 8. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And so the reasoning goes like this. Les, what happened was simply this. God, because he knows all, is above time. A fact that I would say is quite true. God is actually sovereign and over even time itself. He sees the beginning and the end as all at once. And so if God does that, Les then his foreknowledge is a knowledge that he has before. He simply looks out throughout the corridors of time and sees the people who are going to become Christians and elects or predestines them on the basis of the fact that he sees them believing in the infinite future. Does that make sense? And some people say, that's why this is not so arbitrary and capricious like you seem to make it to be, that God's choice is sort of sovereign overall. Hmm, okay. Well, honestly, the truth is there is an idea of foreknowledge. But I would say that our fore, his foreknowledge for us is actually not based upon just some sort of uh, uh, um, n- vague awareness of. A lot of people think foreknowledge is just something that says, well, it's out there in the future and so... Uh, He's aware of the fact that it's going to happen. But in the Bible, to know someone is a much more powerful thing than to be aware of them. Actually, to know someone, just to get explicit about it if you can, oftentimes when the Bible talks about knowing someone, it means being like sexually intimate with them in a marriage. You know, Adam went and knew his wife. This is not sort of a vague awareness. This is a deep, powerful intimacy that's being talked about. And what Paul is saying is, is that before the foundations of the earth, God actually set his love upon you. You know what he's talking about. 
Foreknowledge is talking about that union with Christ that we talked about before Christmas. It's talking about union with Christ. This idea that God sort of sets his love upon us. And so therefore, what we have when we see foreknowledge is not just a vague awareness, but God saying, this is the one who I will love, who I will work out all of their salvation, that I will simply uh, uh, adore during all this. That's the first thing is foreknowledge is not just awareness of, it's an actual love of. The second thing though, that if we try to reason in such a way that says, well, God basically looks throughout the corridors of time and see who's going to be Christian and elects them on the basis of that, one of the great problems with using that as a way to sort of get out from under this is it's awfully redundant. This took me a while to sort of realize this when I first heard it, but I lived with this idea when I was sort of growing up in the non-denominational Bible church that I grew up in. This idea of foreknowledge was, was set forward as this awareness of, but I suddenly realized, or actually read in a book one time, that if God simply elects on the basis of what he knows to be the truth, that's kind of like, well, how nice of him. <laughs> but that really doesn't do anything. If we're already going to become Christians anyway, what's the value of electing us and predestinating us? It's redundant if it's already going to happen. And it actually renders this idea that was so precious to these early believers almost inert, like they mentioned it for a reason that wasn't really there. No, 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 the biblical idea of foreknowledge is a beautiful thing because it's basically saying that that someone thought about you um, and planned out your life. Look, I don't know about you, but, but I feel like you have had to endure for the last few years, uh, Les Newsom getting older, and part of getting older uh, means that I have to reflect upon it in Sunday school. So that's what you get for coming on New Year's Day. Um, but I remember um, having a conversation with um, someone in, uh, I, I did campus ministry uh, for about 17 years before being what I am now uh, as an area coordinator with RUF. Um, and I remember having a conversation with a young man who, uh, whose oldest siblings were like 15 years older than he. <laughs> and it was really funny to hear him talk about like, yep, I was the surprise. Um, and we were laughing a little bit about, um, you know, the idea of like, what does it mean to be the accident of the family? <laughs> uh, the unplanned one in the family, you may have been such a person. But I'm suddenly realizing that as every sort of like year passes by, I feel like there are more and more how do I say this? Like just even pastoral situations that just defy your ability to neatly understand it. You know what I'm talking about? Like you hear of, uh, of situations that are so tragic that like you don't even know how to think about it. And so you make a choice just not to think about it. Cancer in children, uh, parents outliving their children, um, 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 people that you looked at that you knew that you knew that you knew were the most solid, faithful people ever, and they fell away. Um, lifestyles that you just thought were so certain, but suddenly you get waylaid by this. There's a lot in life that will push you to, to, to feel like there is no one at the wheel of the universe. It just does. And there's no way... There's no way that you can live life long enough without that creeping little voice being like, none of this makes any sense. Not a bit of it. And this is the crazy thing. It's like getting worse as I get older. But look, when I go back to the order of salvation, I am steeled. I am, I am, 
I am uh, uplifted by this thought that no matter how random and arbitrary life feels, I am not an accident. We did not go through, and good night, you could not have people say enough bad things about our last year as we're being spilled, you know, in the last week, for Pete's sake. And is there, for some of you, you may look and be like, 2016 demonstrates for me that there is nobody at the wheel. You may look and be like, no, it's going to, who knows? But the bottom line is, everything in life pushes us towards that. And the doctrine of election says, no, you are not a cosmic accident. It is no accident that you're here this morning. There is, there is, a, there is a purpose, there's a foundation, there's a mission, there's a reason why this is happening. The Puritans used to say, or actually people used to say of the Puritans, that they were a group of people that were incapable of being disillusioned by life. I love this. Because they were so convinced that everything that was happening was ordered by the, by, by the, by the mind of a loving God who had foreknown them and elected them and brought things about in the way in which they were going. I love that. Because frankly, I'm disillusioned all the time. Mostly about myself. Puritans looked and said there was some richness here. Okay? So that's the first one. I thought God had foreknowledge. Secondly, whoa, 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 whoa. Now, Les, if what you're saying is true, I thought everybody had free will. Human beings have free will. We all have free will. Is there anything more popular than the idea that free will is there? Well, look, um, freedom, as it turns out, is a very big deal to this generation. If you are 40 years old or older, uh, freedom is not the huge value that it is to anyone who is 40, year old, 40 years old or younger. Um, 40-year-olds year old and older tend to look and create a, a fundamental value of life, of people being good. You're supposed to do the right thing, to live the right way. Under 40, the chief value is no one has the right to tell me what I ought to be. True freedom in life is me to be whatever my individuality expresses it at any given time on the basis of my own internal desires. That is the chief highest value. But what, I, what, we, what campus ministry ends up spending a lot of time speaking to this generation is, is that freedom is a whole lot more complicated than you think. Freedom oftentimes is thought by people as the absence of any kind of restrictions in life. And free will is often thought of as the same thing. Less, I'm free to make whatever decisions I want to make. And I want to say, yes, that's true. But you are not free to change your wants. Am I free to do whatever I want? Yes. Am I free to change my wants? Not necessarily. Can an apple tree, is an apple tree, better philosophical question for a Sunday morning, <laughs> Is an apple tree free to produce oranges? And you would say, well, I would say probably no. <laughs> There's no moral constraint on the apple tree not to produce oranges. The problem is not with the freedom of that apple tree's uh, life. It's actually with the ability of that apple tree's life. In other words, the freedom of the will in the Bible, which is a rarely mentioned concept for a reason I hope you'll see in just a second, is always subsumed by the question of the ability of the will. This is a great little thing to write down in the margins of one's Bible. 
The freedom of the will is far less interesting in the Bible than the question of the ability of the will. It's not what am I free to do, it's what am I able to do. And then you begin to sort of get into the simple uh, demonstration of Scripture. And that is that the ability of my will prior to God coming in and changing it and working in my life is to simply do anything around sin. Is a sinner um, free to change? There's a sense in which the answer to that is yes. The question is, is a sinner able to change? And the Bible says no. Can a leopard change its spots? The Bible asks rhetorically. Of course, the answer being no. The natural mind, the Bible says, is in hostility towards God. The human heart seeks no good thing uh, uh, in and of itself. Um, look, uh, oftentimes people wrestle with this question psychologically because they're like, wait a minute, well, well, I really want to obey, but sometimes I just really struggle. And the truth is, is that really true? <laughs> I, I want to I push something a little further, not to send you into panic, but different reasons. Bear with me for just a second. The truth of the matter is, is that oftentimes even our obedience to God's law was simply a doing of the good things so long as my own sovereignty in life wasn't challenged. Have you ever noticed that there's oftentimes a way to be obedient to someone or some ideal as long as it doesn't really get at those things that, you know, really sort of bother me? Um, but ever, well, not suddenly the mastery of my life. In other words, once God's commands kind of muscle their way into that one thing that I'm really hanging on to, then all of a sudden it's easy to jettison those things. In other words, it's something like someone come along and say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm, God is really dealing with me and working with me on my bad language. Well, you know, it may just be that potty talk is easy for you to clean up in your life because it's sort of an external but when all of a sudden I begin, when all of a sudden the commands of God get into those areas that I most dearly hold on to, how often am I willing to make excuses to, to, to change, to sort, of, uh, you know, sort of morph that idea a little bit, so come, rationalize the idea? Um, you know, it might be that I place a high value in my life of telling the truth, truth-telling. You've got to be honest with people. I'm a, person, I'm a, I'm a truth-teller, Les. I'm a person who says things honestly. But then someone comes along and asks me if I remembered to pray for them. This is a great church example. Do you remember that I asked you to pray for me about such and such? Ah, now I stand at a crossroads, right? Because I'm a truth teller, right? But I stand at a crossroads because I don't want that person to know that I didn't think about praying to them for more than three seconds after they asked me to pray for them. It's okay, you're all going, let's that shallow? Yes, it's far worse than you know. So what do I do? I lie. Yes, I certainly did. Tell me how that's going. Why did I do that? Because suddenly you got into the real sort of central aspects of life, which is I want to give the appearance that you think I'm a righteous person. <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> I'm, going to use, I'm going to use this illustration. I may regret this. So I was at a, um, it's always good to start an illustration that way so the elders can get a little sweaty. Um, where's he going? Uh, so, you know, I've been out of being on campus uh, for um, about five and a half years now with, this, with the job as an area director with RUF. And so for 17 years, I've got, I've got college students kind of piled up for 17 years. And one of the challenging things is to go to a social event 
where there will be students from those 17 years in attendance and to play the name game, okay? And so there's oftentimes where I'll go into something like, oh, I don't know, like a wedding uh, that I went to uh, Friday night um, and look around and realize, oh, goodness, it's time for quiz time. And so what campus ministry uh, ends up being thankful for in the new year uh, is what, uh, the, the God's gracious gift of Facebook. Um, uh, and so Facebook is what is given to us. So I can sit during the ceremony and kind of flip through, who is it? Right, right, that's so-and-so sister, right, and kind of go through. And again, so, so we were on our way back from the wedding. Um, um, we were riding with Lee and Susan. And um, I, basically what I said was something that was very true, like Facebook is the thing that allows me to appear thoughtful to the world around me. Um, when, when I'm actually not at all. What does that mean? It just means that until you, when you get into the real core of what's going on, I'm jettisoning those things. So my free will is still locked into this struggle um, to, to, to know whether I'm obeying simply because the commands of God have been convenient. I wonder how much of the righteousness of my life is due in, no, in, 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 in the righteousness of life, in my life is due in no other reason than the fact that I've got kids who are looking at me all the time. Now, look, I'm grateful for that, right? But there's another sense in which it might be that a lot of this, a lot of what I call my free choice to do what's right has been nothing more because it's been convenient for me. The doctrine of election, though, can give you the freedom to admit that without it crushing you. To admit that and say, you know what? Yeah, it's true. Even when I get down to my real motives, they all stink. All of them really stink. So yeah, the freedom of the will. The will is enslaved to even my deepest desires. Number three. Well, if this is true, this is just not fair. <laughs> um, yeah, look, for the Christian, something has shaken you. Something is being done to you. And oftentimes we say, well, this is just not fair. Why did God sort of, you know, sort of get the people that he got, but not other people? It just means that this is sort of arbitrary. Like, but, but look, this is only unfair if everyone deserved it. Um, this objection actually is one of the easier ones to deal with biblically because of the way the Bible looks at us. Um, election has to be true because how unflatteringly the Bible looks at us as people. Um, the, the illustration I heard somebody use, and, and the illustration fails, but I'll use it for the sake of getting the discussion going. Let's say that you have four friends who are dead set on leaving your house and going to rob a bank. Okay, And on their way out, you whack two of them over the head and drag them back and bind them to the house so that they can't commit the crime. Well, the others go, they rob the bank, they kill a guard, and they end up on death row. And you go and visit those other two on death row. <clears throat> and they look at you and say, this wasn't fair. You're the one who landed us here. You would say to yourself, well... It seemed like all of you were dead set on heading towards robbing the bank anyway. In other words, this was really the chief desire that you had. I just happened to interrupt the, the desires of some others. Look, and I realize that that thing fails in a certain thing, but the question is not why isn't everyone worked upon by God's grace? The question is why is anyone worked on by God's grace? When we look at the way in which the Bible sort of considers it. If we perish, there is no one to blame but ourselves. The Bible places the responsibility for our salvation on ourselves 
in terms of what we react to. Um, but the ultimate reason for that salvation coming from God. Fourthly, move a little faster here. So am I just supposed to sit back and wait? Awesome. So, you know, God basically is going to do the saving. I'm going to be doing the getting saved. And so I'll just uh, get along with life and wait for something to happen, right? Is that the way we're going to do this? Well, look, again, we're trying to look at life in this study from God's point of view. We're trying to stand on top of the desk of the Dead Poet Society and see the world from that. You know, let, let's say that we're on, a, we're on a camping trip. I'll choose an illustration that is, is completely detached from my own life. Um, I'm like Jim Gaffigan. I'm what you'd call indoorsy. Um, and um, so let's, let's say I'm out on a camping trip. Um, and my son and I, you know, it's time to cut some firewood for the fire. And so I look at my son and I say, son, I need you to go out and cut us some firewood to gather something for our fire tonight. And we wait around for about an hour and, you know, there's no wood. And so I look at my son, I'm like, son, what's the deal? Why is there no wood? And what if he responded to me something like this? Well, you know, dad, I know that you're a good dad. And I know that you, and I knew that you would not let us die out here. And so I knew that the wood was going to get cut anyway. So I decided I would sit and enjoy my time here rather than go and actually gather that firewood for you. And what would you say to your son at that point? You would say, look, if I simply wanted my son to be my partner, uh, maybe that would be uh, okay. But actually, I kind of I didn't want you just to work you know, and to be a part of this, just to sort of get tasks done so we can survive. I wanted you and I to do this together. That's why he dragged ourselves out here into the wilderness, right? <laughs> so we could participate. In other words, I don't want this just to be task management. I really want for us to be together on this. I want for this to be a real relationship. Look, one of the beautiful things about God's sovereignty is if you really begin to push it, if you really begin to push it to where it it ends up going, because it's not just that God's sovereignty is over, you know, the, the, the people who come to salvation. It's also over, like, even the words that I'm speaking right now. The creativity that you engage in as a person to do your, your art well. The, the determination and, and, and ingenuity that you bring to your, to your job where you put pieces together and make it all come out and work right. All of that is born of God's action prior to your action. But here's the thing. Once you own that great fact, you suddenly are freed up to go out there and dive into it all with that much more energy. In other words, I would make an argument that God's absolute sovereignty doesn't rob us of, of inaction, doesn't, doesn't create inaction and rob us of action, it actually releases us to do so with that much more energy. Look, if I thought that we were either robots or had ultimate free will, I don't think I would get up out of bed in the morning. Think about this for a second. Let's say that our choices mean nothing, that we really are robots and God just wants a bunch of automatons. I wouldn't get up out of the bed in the morning. Why? Because who cares? Life is meaningless anyway. There's no real interaction with life. But on the other hand, if I thought that all of my choices and all of my destiny was going to be determined by my every thought, my every action, and my every word, I still wouldn't get out of bed in the morning for dead fear of actually ruining it all because there would be no second chances, would there? They would simply be the arbitrariness of life. Look, the point in all this 
God's absolute determination to set the world to, in the direction which he has releases us to be able to act. It doesn't deny us that. Oftentimes you get people, the other question, illustration someone used, will they look and say, well, I don't know. Did, did I, am I the one who uh, sort of um, uh, chose to become a Christian or did God choose for me to become a Christian? And the answer, of course, is yes. But the question is, is not in, on the same plane. I used to use the, the illustration of you know, Charles Dickens' uh, book, Great Expectations, the story of little Pip and his life as he goes through it. And I would always ask this question, like, who decided to leave home when he did? Was it Pip or was it Charles Dickens? And you think to yourself, well, it depends on whose perspective you're looking at. If you're, if you're looking at the perspective of life inside the story, Pip had decisions that were real. But if you're looking at the ultimate reason for the story, it was Charles Dickens who was writing the whole thing. That illustration breaks down philosophically too, but I'm trying to get at the emotions of it. Don't you see the beauty though of realizing that we are living a story, his story that he's writing, but our decisions inside that story are real decisions. I use the word real, not the word free, because free is problematic. It makes it, it's a difficult concept, but they are real in the sense that God is the one who tells me what is real. And so therefore I can enjoy them in knowing that I can go out and make decisions and use my choices and use my rationality and use my creativity, knowing that he is working out all things for his own good. And there's no better place you get this in the Bible than places like Philippians 2, 12 and 13, is there? <laughs> Where he looks and says, now, I want you, Paul says to the Philippians, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, I want you to dig into this stuff about what it means for you to be mine. And I want you to, 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 to rework the calculus of it and figure it out and then apply it to your life and, and deny yourself of these things, but, but delight yourself in these other things and, and to grow. I want you to work this out and do it with great fear and, and energy. Verse 13, for or because or in the light of, it is God who is at work in you both to will, that's to want, and to do according to his good pleasure. You know, the first time you show a college student this, they go, you know, I've never seen two verses contradict each other that close together. Right? Yeah, it certainly appears that way, doesn't it? So which is it? Am I to work out my salvation with fear and trembling? Or is it God who is at work both to will and to do? Yes. But notice, it's not and or but it is God who works in. It's for because. In other words, it's not I work and God works. It's not I work, you know, uh, God works, but I work too. It's I work because or for God is working. You see, the doctrine of election, once it really gets hold of you, empowers you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because I know he is in guard, he's guarding over me. He is watching me and helping me. The last one is this one, and I saved the most mysterious one for last. Well, doesn't God want to save everybody? The answer to that question is yes, he says so. Can God save everybody? Yes, he's absolutely able to do so. Well, then why doesn't he? Well, look, I'm afraid I, don't, I, I can't do any better than to tell you I don't know. And no one knows. The Bible doesn't give us that answer. Um, 
Look, but the problem, but understand that those who come to believe this doctrine have not created a new problem. Um, There are those who would like to say, you know what, I don't like the doctrine of election and predestination. I certainly less don't like the way in which you've presented it this morning. Uh, And so therefore, I'd rather believe that man really does have a freedom of his will and it really is kind of all dependent on him. You've not solved this problem with that formulation. Think about this. Ask the question again. Does God want to save everybody? Yes. Can he save everybody? Yes. But you know what? He doesn't want to take away your free will. Wouldn't your response be to that, uh, <clears throat> hey, no problem. Hey, <laughs> offend me for a minute, but save me for eternity. Um, I'll take that deal. You don't answer the question by simply throwing out into a message of free will, uh, arbitrary free will for human beings. It doesn't solve this question because it's actually rooted to a larger, bigger question about the reason why we have evil in the universe in the first place. Why is it that God allows the evil that he does? Now look, I actually believe the Bible teaches that God has a morally sufficient reason for allowing the evil that he does. But I also believe that God has made a choice not to reveal that to us. At least not in the terms in which we would like. But I would simply offer this in response. It seems to me that the whole trajectory of the Bible's teaching is leading us for God to solve this problem of evil in the universe. That he has somehow, in his infinite mind, set in course events that will lead to the ultimate eradication of evil. So I'm not able, from the information that I get from the Bible, to sort of go back and critique him and be like, well, it's almost like he's not really working at this. No, he's doing all kinds of things to work at it. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia sits down with uh, Lucy and Edmund at the end of the voyage of the Dawn Treader and has to tell them the bad news. And remember the bad news for Lucy and Edmund? That is that they will never return to Narnia again. It was their last trip, and they begin to weep, and they begin to cry, and it makes no sense to them. And they beg him to come back, and they say, and they say why? Why can't we go back? And Aslan looks at little Lucy and says, do you really need to know that child? I only tell people their own story. I only tell people that their own story. Don't start messing with things above your pay grade. (laughs) I'm telling you your own story. I'm here working here. Lewis got pretty close to it. Look, let me conclude with this real quick sort of notion here, the benefits of election. James Montgomery Boyce a couple years ago in his commentary on Ephesians listed four reasons why this is helpful. Number one, election makes us humble. In other words, election basically comes along and says, you know what, Um, this gets rid of any kind of bragging about your salvation. And you know what, that's a good thing. My guess is many of you have all kinds of testimonies as to the times in which your pride has gotten in the way and messed up your life. Election comes down and eliminates all of it. Secondly, and one of the whole reasons for me to even sort of discuss this whole topic is the doctrine of election is one of the real hooks to give you assurance of your salvation. The only way in which I can really know that my Christianity that God has begun is going to continue on throughout all my life or is even in my possession right now is if he's the one who's doing it. If he's the one who is not messing it up, it gives us assurance. Thirdly, and this is really weird, far from making me lazy, Paul says that we are elected to be holy and blameless in his sight. 
to be holy and blameless. In other words, the knowledge that God is at work doesn't discourage me from working to change my life. It actually empowers it. You want to know why? Because I know I can't fail. The vast majority of reasons why I fail is because I tiptoe into things. I'm fraught with fear. The Bible comes along and says God is at work. So therefore, dive into it all the more. Go at it with reckless abandon. And then finally, and this is going to sound weird to a lot of people, election promotes evangelism. You know, George Whitfield, William Carey, uh, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, they all believed this doctrine. And they all were huge evangelists for the gospel. Why? Because they believed that God had the elect out there somewhere. And it was not their responsibility to decide who was and who was not. That was illogical. It was their responsibility to be indiscriminate to everyone. We believe in the free offer of the gospel to all without discrimination and leave it to God for who he's going to work in in the way in which he will. But using human means. Look, the bottom line is, and my favorite sort of benefit of election comes to us from the voice of Dan Fogelberg. <laughs> For those of you who knew who that was, then you get it, get it credit. So, uh, you know, sort of uh, famed 19, uh, 1970s, 1980s singer-songwriter Dan Fogelberg. You know, you listen to a, to a Dan Fogelberg song and suddenly you're, you're high in the mountains of Colorado, are you not? I, I'm telling you, this guy, if you've never heard of him, young people, if you've never heard of him, young people, you need to go look up some Dan Fogelberg. I'll, I'll, make, you, I'll make you a playlist or something, put it on Spotify. That's what the kids do these days. <clears throat> uh, you know, one of the great things about Dan Fogelberg, a singer-songwriter, is he put together, you know, lyrics that are just, they're just awful. Um, you know, like some of the most syrupy, sweet, you know, pathetic uh, love songs you've ever heard came from the pen of this man. He actually passed away a couple years ago. Um, but no, no greater, sappier song do we have than Longer. Listen to this hideous poetry. Longer than... There have been fishes in the ocean. And I defy those of you who know the song to keep from singing it for the rest of church. You're welcome. <laughs> Longer than there have been fishes in the ocean, higher than any bird ever flew, I've been in love with you. Keeps going on. There's more verses to that. I'm not going to play them all. <laughs> Why do we do that? Now, here's the deal. Lots of you knew, this, knew the verse to this because when it came out in the late 70s, early 80s, you memorized it and wept over it and sang about it to the person that you, you know, were in love with. You might have even dedicated it to her or to him. This reminds me so much of you. Longer than there have been fishes in the ocean. In other words, this is the point. Why do, we, why do guys like Dan Fogelberg, I don't even think I spelled his name right, why do they write sappy love songs in this way? Why do they do so? You want to know why? Because every human being was born to experience a love that is its own justification. I think that we were all born with a desire, an inner longing to be, to, 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 for someone to love us where the love is its own rationale. Why do you love me? Because I love you. Some of us discovered this about our marriages too late. That when we loved, when we fell in love or we decided we would love someone because they were handsome or beautiful or, or, or gifted or smart, or responsible, when you decided to love for all of those reasons, you were betrayed, weren't you? You're betrayed by those because people change. 
I remember a lady when I was working in the youth group back in the day looking at me and saying, look, how much have you changed in the last 10 years of your life? I'd be like, well, a lot. Go, why do you think you're going to stop changing in the next 10 years of your life? How do you know that person that you marry is not going to be an entirely different person 10 years later? And you know the answer to that question? You don't. Why? But here, but, so you look and say, well, I'm, marriage probably not a very good idea if that's the case. Well, not if it's based upon the goodness of that other person. It ain't going to work. What do we long for? What we're saying when we say we love someone is we long for love that just loves us because they love us. And God says that's the same reason. God, why do you love me? It's not because of anything in you. I love you because I love you for a love that is its own rationale. Election gives us that from the pen of Dan Fogelberg.